are in week three of a sermon series called Return of the King. So if any of you guys were alive when those movies came out, um, you might recognize what I'm talking about. Or if you've actually read the trilogy by Tolkien, you'll know what I'm talking about. But uh, basically, in the story, what you're familiar with is uh, that there's this, this man named Aragorn who people see, and he just doesn't look like a king at all, uh, but he actually happens to be the true king of Gondor. And in the story, there are a couple different storylines, but one of the storylines is that uh, the kingdom will only be right and fully healed when Aragorn, the true king, is on the throne. And so we're in the book of 1 Samuel, and in 1 Samuel, there's all this talk about kings. There's Saul, there's David. But what all of these kings do is they actually point us to the one true king, Jesus. And so part of what we believe is that this world that we live in will also not be fully healed and fully made right until the one true king is on the throne. In uh, the first week, we took a look at 1 Samuel 16, and we saw the anointing of the unlikely king, this young boy, David, who was just this little shepherd boy. When Samuel went out to visit his family and knew he was going to anoint one of these eight sons as a king, the dad forgot even about David. I mean, he even didn't realize that David might be this king. And the key verse in 1 Samuel 16 is verse 7, which says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so there's this recurring theme throughout Scripture, but also in the book of 1 Samuel, about the way in which we look at the world, the way in which we look at people, and we see that in verse 7. In the last week, in 1 Samuel 17, we looked at the story of the courageous king, David, where he confronted the Philistine giant Goliath. And while everyone else stepped back out of fear for this giant, David stepped forward to fight the Philistine champion. The key verse in 17 is verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. In other words, David didn't, uh, didn't find courage in his military technology or in his speed or agility. Rather, his courage came from the fact that he knew God was with him. Today, we're going to be jumping into 1 Samuel 18. Uh, but before we get into 1 Samuel 18, it's a little bit less uh, known of a story. But before we get there, we're going to be starting with a clip of two capuchin monkeys. Now, if you need to know what a capuchin monkey is. If you remember Dexter from Night at the Museum, uh, that's a capuchin monkey. Anyway, but there are these two capuchin monkeys, and they perform the same task, but in this clip you're about to see, they each get different rewards. The monkey on the left gets a piece of cucumber for giving a rock to the researcher, while the monkey on the right gets grapes. And you will be fascinated and probably entertained, I hope, by what you see. But before we jump into that clip, let me take a moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for this theme of John the Baptist today, that um, when his um, kingdom was threatened, he said that uh, Jesus must become greater, and he was willing to become less. And Father, when his own disciples were curious about Jesus, he said, go to him, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so I thank you that we have this example of John the Baptist who um, gives up his kingdom uh, in order that the one true king might step onto the throne. And so, Father, I pray that that would be true for us, that as we come into contact with your son, Jesus, um, that we would allow your son to become greater um, in our hearts and in our lives. Father, that we'd step back and let your son, Jesus, be the king. 
pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. The one on the left is the monkey who gets cucumber. The one on the right is the one who gets grapes. The one who gets cucumber, note that the first piece of cucumber is perfectly fine. The first piece she eats. Uh, then she sees the other one getting grape and you will see what happens. So she gives a rock to us, that's the task. And we give her a piece of cucumber and she eats it. The other one needs to give a rock to us. And that's what she does. And she gets a grape. And she eats it. The other one sees that. She gives a rock to us now, gets again cucumber. She tests a rock now against the wall. She needs to give it to us. And she gets cucumber again. So this is basically the Wall Street protest that you see here. That's a funny clip. Anyway. So what we just watched in this clip was we watched how envy amongst these little capuchin monkeys created a humorous result. In the story that we're about to read from 1 Samuel 18, however, we'll see that the envy and jealousy of Saul uh, produced something much, much worse. Let's jump into verse 1, and I'm going to read pretty much this whole chapter. But again, because each of these is a story, um, I think you can hang on uh, throughout the reading of it. But if you will, 1 Samuel 18, verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul, or that is a euphemism which means as himself, essentially. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house, that's David. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him again as his own soul or as himself. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Uh, once again, we see this theme of seeing, right? Sight. Verse 6. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands, and what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Again, there's that theme of seeing. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hur hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. 
Then Saul said to David, here's my elder daughter, Merab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Maholathite, for a wife. Saul had promised, uh, if you remember from the story of um, David fighting Goliath, that anybody who defeated Goliath would be given uh, his daughter in marriage. But here, Saul actually kind of reneged. And not only that, he added a further condition to the deal. He said, I'll give you my daughter if you continue to fight these battles for me. Again, what Saul was really concerned about was getting David killed. Verse 20, now Saul's daughter, Michael, this is another daughter, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in, David, in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I'm a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines that, they, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. So just think about the movie 300 for a moment. It's, we're talking about some warriors here. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michael for a wife. Verse 28. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Again, interesting, interesting story. It could be made into part of a movie. The question is, what should we be looking at in this story? What should we see? I think the first thing we need to see is we need to see the devastating effects of Saul's jealousy and his envy. It's crystal clear, I think, to see how Saul's jealousy and envy are absolutely corrosive. He tries to kill David twice. He sends David to war in the hopes that he'll be killed by the Philistines. In fact, the reason he makes him a commander is to get him out of the royal court, put him on the front lines in the hopes that he'll be killed. He then uses his own daughter as a leverage to try to get David killed without any thought for her own welfare, what's good for her. She was just a pawn. His envy and jealousy are cancerous. We read about jealousy we read about envy throughout scripture from the very beginning of scripture to the very end in fact one of the very first sins that we see in scripture is where cain murders his brother abel and that murder is rooted in these two sins of jealousy and envy and we see those sins condemned in the new testament as well romans 13 says this the night is almost gone and the day is near therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. And so according to Paul, uh, one of these deeds of darkness is, darkness is jealousy. Mark 7, 
says this, for from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. They're corrosive. According to psychologist Richard Smith, envy occurs when we lack a desired attribute that is possessed by someone else. So it's beauty or strength or bravery or wealth, or the list goes on and on. Jealousy, however, occurs when something we already possess, usually a special relationship, is threatened by a third person. So envy is a two-person situation, whereas jealousy is a three-person situation. Envy is a reaction to lacking something. Jealousy is a reaction to the threat of losing something or someone. In the story, it's easy to see the decay of envy and jealousy. Saul, the current king, has already shown himself to be morally questionable, to say the least. Several times, Saul willfully disregarded the Lord's commands. In the story of David and Goliath, he lets David, a mere boy, go out and fight the Philistine giant when he should have been the one going out to fight in the name of the Lord. On the way back from the battle, a group of women make up this song in celebration of David. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And needless to say, Saul is not thrilled at all. We see his response in verses 8 and 9. It says this, And Saul was very angry, and, and this saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Again, envy and jealousy corrupted even the way that he looked at the world. We see both, Saul, both uh, Saul's jealousy and his envy displayed in the story. He's envious of the praise that's given to David by the women, and so he gets angry. And that's actually one of the hallmarks of envy. It results in anger, and then it results in resentment and bitterness and goes further. And so anger is a sign, a symptom of envy. Clinical psychologist uh, Natalie Rice recently wrote the following after watching the Golden Globes. She said this, I was one of the many people who turned in to the Golden Globe awards, awards ceremony the other day. I'm embarrassed to admit that I did feel some pangs of envy as I watched the glamorous celebrities pose for the cameras on their walk down the red carpet. Envy can be a destructive emotion both mentally and physically, she goes on to write. Envious people tend to feel hostile, resentful, angry, and irritable. Such individuals are also less likely to feel grateful about their positive traits and their circumstances. Envy is also related to depression, anxiety, the development of prejudice, and personal unhappiness. And so clearly, according to Scripture, and according to these two psychologists, envy is a destructive force. Like all sin, envy makes us less human, right? Less human. You not only see envy in this little story of Saul, you see jealousy as well. And so jealousy, whereas envy involves anger, jealousy involves the fear of losing someone or something. Look back at verse 8. What more can he have but the kingdom? Saul can't bear the attention that David is getting, and in his jealousy, he becomes fearful of losing the kingdom. So again, while envy is marked by anger and bitterness, jealousy is marked by fear. Verses 12 and 15 and 29 all refer to Saul's fear. And so part of what the story has to teach us is what envy and jealousy are, but the story also serves to teach us that if you don't deal with your envy and jealousy, if you don't take control of them, 
then your envy and jealousy won't only harm others, it will destroy you. In fact, envy and jealousy will turn you into a monster. In 2005, there was a young girl, 16 years old, named Adrienne Reynolds. She moved from Kilgore, Texas to uh, Moline, Illinois, and she entered into school. And uh, when she got to school, you know, like so often the new kid is, she was kind of pretty and she was kind of bubbly and and all of a sudden, all these other boys started paying attention to her, and all these guys liked her because she was pretty. And there was another girl who was at the school who became jealous and envious of all this attention that uh, Adrian was getting. And so this other girl, Sarah, told one of her friends, she said, I'm going to kill that girl. And, uh, and her friend thought, you know, she doesn't mean that, until later they found Adrian's body. And what had happened was, is this envy and this jealousy had turned Sarah into a monster. She was envious and jealous of this new girl's popularity. The lesson is very clear for all of us, whether it's from Saul or this little story, that if you don't deal with your envy and jealousy, it will turn you, it will turn you into something monstrous. Now, I usually avoid over-clarifying or qualifying too much because I think sometimes those things can sort of ruin the flow of a sermon. They're absolutely appropriate in teaching but sometimes in a sermon, not so much. And in this case, however, I think it's worth noticing that jealousy, like anger, is a valid emotion when it's appropriately directed. The Bible re- repeatedly refers to God as a jealous God. In fact, Exodus thirty-four fourteen says this, you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. I actually love that picture of God. We belong to God, and he is righteously jealous for our affection, and he will defend us from anything that threatens to take away our hearts from him. In marriage, jealousy can also be a righteous emotion. If a wife caught her husband flirting with another woman, she would be rightfully jealous. And uh, if the woman was flirting with her husband, if her hand happened to slip and punch her in the nose, I could forgive it. Anyway, like anger, however, jealousy more often than not is not righteous, it's usually unrighteous. And when unrighteous jealousy and envy take root, then chaos always ensues. So the question from this is, what do we do in terms of envy and jealousy? I think one of the answers is that we need to be willing to see our own sin in these areas. A good friend of mine calls this putting yourself on the autopsy table. In other words, you need to put yourself on the autopsy table in order to see the reality of your heart, what's in there. There's a man named Alexander Solzhenitsyn who wrote uh, the book, The Gulag Archipelago. Again, he was imprisoned in the Russian gulag system. And in uh, his time imprisoned in these gulags, he was able to see not only the worst of humanity, but actually the best of humanity. It's really an amazing read. But he has a great quote where he says, the battle line between good and evil runs to the heart of every man. Uh, In other words, the potential for evil in this case for envy and jealousy, they exist just as much in you and just as much in me as envy and jealousy exist in people that we are easily comfortable looking down on. And so what I would encourage you to do is I would say if you identify unhappiness or bitterness or resentment or anger or fear, and if you're conscious of those things in you, I would encourage you to be brave enough to follow that emotion down to its root. And at the bottom, what you may find is that there's envy and jealousy smoldering and waiting to break into a full fire. So be willing to see your own sin and brokenness. 
The second thing I would encourage you to do in light of this idea of envy and jealousy is to consider exterminating the causes of your envy and jealousy. Research at this point is crystal clear that social networking sites like Instagram and Facebook are envy greenhouses. You see the latest fashion that you don't have or can't afford. You see the guy with a six-pack, abs, six-pack. You see the vacation your friend took to Spain while all you did was go to Dollywood with your parents. <laughs> while you sit on the floor eating a bowl of Lucky Charms for dinner alone, watching reruns of Friends on Netflix, you scroll Instagram and you see a picture of your friend eating sushi in Midtown surrounded by trendy, cool people. Your friend posts pictures of her romantic date in Chattanooga while your boyfriend blows you off to spend another night playing Fortnite. And that's only the first two minutes of your Instagram scroll. It goes on and on and on. Jonathan Haidt, social psychologist at NYU, recently referenced a study that showed from 2009 to 2015, there was a 189% increase in self-harm for Gen Z females, right? 189% in just six years. And he links that increase specifically with social media. And so I'm not saying that you should definitely get off social media, but you may want to at least consider how it might be impacting you, and it may need to be exterminated. So we see Saul in the story, and we see the impact of his envy, and we see the impact of his jealousy. But hopefully you've been here long enough to know that I'm going to ask, do we see Jesus in this story? Because that's what Jesus told us in Luke 24 to look for. Now, I, I took a look at several different sermons and several different commentaries uh, in preparation for my sermon on this passage, and most of them focused on David as the type of Christ in this passage. David faithfully kept serving Saul despite Saul's attempts to use him, despite Saul's attempts to trick him, despite Saul's attempts to ultimately kill him, to try to kill him. Jesus continues to serve us too, even when we try to silence him from our lives. I have no doubt that this interpretation of seeing Jesus and David is absolutely correct, no doubt. But I couldn't help being drawn over and over again to Jonathan, Saul's son. He was a prince. He was the firstborn son of the king of Israel. Jonathan was the rightful heir to the throne. He was the future king, but he gave it all up for his friend. Listen to the words of verses three and four. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. 2,000 years ago, another prince willingly exchanged places with us. Jesus gave us his robe. He gave us his armor. He gave us his sword, his bow, his belt. Jesus gave us his righteousness. And he gave us his place in the royal family precisely because he was willing to lay down his life for you and for me. Now this morning as you look around the room, you'll see these tables. And on these tables there's bread and wine on this side of the room and bread and grape juice on that side of the room. And what this meal represents is a reminder of just how willing Jesus was to lay down his life for us, his friends. That's what John chapter 15, that's what Jesus calls the disciples is what he calls us. And so when we look at this meal of bread and wine, it represents any number of things. It represents forgiveness. It represents Jesus' sacrifice. It represents that you're no longer guilty 
It represents that not only you're no longer guilty, but the righteousness of Christ is placed upon you so that when, Jesus, when God looks at you, he sees Jesus' righteousness. It's all this wonderful stuff. But one of the main things this meal represents is that you're safe, that you're safe to come into the presence of this holy God because Jesus laid down his life for you willingly to declare you righteous. He gives you his robe of righteousness so that when God looks at you, he sees Jesus' righteousness, right? When Jesus laid down his life, he willingly gave it up so that you could have your place as a son or a daughter in the royal court at the table of the Most High God. And so this meal represents that you're safe from all of your sins, right? That they've all been canceled, they've all been paid. So what I would encourage you to do in just a moment before I read these words of institution and set you free to receive the Lord's Supper, I would encourage you to, to let the voice of God in this bread and wine, I would encourage you to let God's voice be louder to you than whatever voice is going on inside your own head. Because what the voice of God says is you are forgiven, you're loved, you're adopted. And amazingly, what the robe of Christ means is that God looks at you and he says you're perfect. Because he doesn't see you, he sees his son's sacrifice for you. And so let God's voice be louder than all those internal voices today. Hear the word, the voice of God declaring that you're safe, that he loves you, he's for you, that he's adopted you as his daughter or as your son. Now, the one qualification I will make is that this meal is actually not for everyone, but this meal is for those people who have looked at Jesus and have said, I trust in Jesus alone. God, I trust in your son alone. And so for those of you who've come to that point, man, I invite you to come to the table. For those of you who haven't come to that point yet, I would simply ask that you sit back and you ponder the sacrifice of this true king on your behalf. Hear now the words of institution. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take one moment and pray. Father, I pray that you would um, prepare us to receive this gift that you offer us of bread and wine, signifying and reminding us of the sacrifice, the willing sacrifice of Jesus. In the same way that Jonathan took his robe and gave it to David. Your son Jesus took his robe and he gave it to us that we might be covered and safe. So Father, I pray that we would hear your voice, your declaration of forgiveness and mercy and grace today in this meal. In Jesus' name we pray.